Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners, so let's be friends. It's still August. There's no F1. Worst month ever. I have had to spend significant time with my children and my wife. The novelty has worn off and I want F1 back. It's actually been a relatively slow news cycle. There's been no silly season. There's been hardly any transfer rumours, perhaps some speculation on where Bonotto might pop up and where Alpine might be finally laid to rest. But thank goodness the old Felipe baby has amused us by declaring himself the 2008 World Driver Champion. And I agree. I am declaring myself the head of the Massa 2008 Champion Committee for Truth and Justice. So we'll explore that. We'll also ask, should tall drivers be at a disadvantage. I say yes. Eat the tall. Disadvantage them all. And we'll ask, has the F1 bubble burst? Because a lot of the Johnny Come Lately podcasts are starting to flee and starting to fade. But the Missed Apex band will keep playing until this ship goes down. I will also ask quite a few Verstappen bits and bobs in this week's show. Does Verstappen want to be here? Or would he rather be playing the piano? And could Supermax regularly put a Haas on pole? Marco says yes, so you know it's true. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed. With the kind permission of our better halves, we aim to bring you a race review, eventually when they can be bothered to race, before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. (laughs) 
I'm joined by nearly my oldest available panel, uh, Christian Pedersen. How's it going, Christian? Am I the? I'm the third oldest, right? I, I'm 52. Oh, in that case, yeah, you're the third oldest behind Matt Trumpets and uh, and Uncle Steve. Uh, which brings us to the second panelist. Exactly, the oldest available panelist. Which is fun. We, we like your wisdom, Uncle Steve. Thanks for joining us. Well, you're foolish, aren't you? Wisdom, I don't have any of that. <laughs> and the thing is as well, like I, unfortunately, I'm the fourth uh, oldest available panellist. And at 42, 43 next week, I, I still think of myself as quite sprightly and young. And if a 40, like when Jules joins and he's the same age, I think of Jules as a, an old guy. But it, it's happening. Time is munching on us all. But thankfully, this panel has enough age and experience to be able to look back to the 2008 season, which is going to be our first news story. And I watched quite a lot of 2008 footage. Christian, it really was. You know, I was watching it today and I was looking at those cars, you know, jumping around. I, I'm always like a little bit of a cheerleader, even for modern F1. I think we do have g- good racing or the potential for good racing in modern F1. But those cars, minimal aero, groove tires, mm. there, was, there was something special about that era, 2008 time. I think if you look back at 2008, it was also like the culmination of, uh, I wouldn't say time, but a wait for a large group of uh, Formula One fans because it was the post-Schumacher era and we've had one challenging him, which was Alonso. And Alonso had signed for McLaren uh, the year before this, which was the big fallout with Hamilton and stuff. So 2008 was sort of a... I wouldn't say uh, like a restart, but sort of in uh, in a way because suddenly Hamilton and Alonso was in different cars, and Hamilton had his chance, and it was still like the the great sounding engines, the cars looked amazing, uh, and we had rain at the right races, and it was just a very very strong Formula One season. It, it was, and I think this is a season where it. it- it bears kind of looking back on. I had a really good time looking back on that old footage and reminding myself of key moments. And the Singapore 2008 Grand Prix is the one we're focusing on now because Fernando Alonso ended up getting the win by having his teammate, and this was planned all in advance, having his teammate crash deliberately to cause a safety car. And just before that safety car, they had manufactured the correct pit stop for him to take advantage of a safety car that happened at that exact time. But one of the things that, that jumped out at me, Steve, was this was a kind of a desperate Fernando Alonso. He he was basically driving a Renault when he could have been driving the car that eventually won the world championship. So seeing his his press his press conference afterwards, knowing what we know now, it was it was a little sheepish. And the the whole thing I think just it it felt like a bit silly. It's like, oh, you must be feeling silly right now. He should have been feeling, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, fairly silly. Um, he said that he didn't know anything about, you know, later on he said that he didn't know anything about <laughs> oh, this yeah. plan to crash the car into the wall, but I called BS on that. He knew well and truly, uh, and it was a plan by Briatore in order to, you know, get uh, Alonso and Renault yeah. uh, in, you know, on, into a winning position. Um, and it was the the single race. I was a big Alonso fan up until that point. From the day he started racing in Minardi, in the days when Paul Stoddard owned Minardi and Paul Stoddard's an Australian. So I was uh-huh. you know, very heavily 
very heavily an Alonso man, and that race came along, and I've disliked the fellow ever since because, you know, that is not the way, you know, racing should be partaken. And, of course, Briatore I never liked particularly at all, so that that just kind of um, amplified the reasons why I didn't like him. So no one came out of this this good, Christian. Like, uh, Briatore ended up with a an indefinite ban, and who was the other engineer that got a five-year ban out of this? Pat Fry. Pat- no, Fry, no. Yeah. Was it Pat Fry? Oh, no. Simmons. The other Pat. No, Pat Simmons. Yeah, Pat, Pat Simmons. Simmons sorry. Cool. sorry, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Got um, a five-year year ban. So, you know, I was doing a bit of, of research into this, and actually the race media did a, a brilliant uh, summary of, of, of what, what was the motivation for this, this, this travesty. And basically, Renault had been told, or the, the upper management had said to Flavio Briatore, if we don't get a win this year, we might pull the plug. And and basically that put massive pressure on them. And so when they turned up and they went, oh, hang on, we have got a bit of pace here, actually. Well, how can we take advantage of it? And and, and as was reported by the race, one of the, the senior engineers sort of half joked saying, well, you know, if we had a well-timed safety car, we could we could bump him up the grid. And they decided to go ahead and do that. But it also speaks to something I've been banging on about with Renault for ages, which is they never the parent company never seems fully committed to modern F1. It always feels like there's some there's some Derek in Renault that is going, hey, I think we can do an F1 project. I think we can do these things and and just give us time. So it was Cyril Abitable doing that in the post-Lotus period at Enstone, saying, yeah, we've got the five-year plan. And then obviously then uh, Renault sort of disappear and go, no, 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 it's actually, it's Alpine, it's Alpine. But even back then, Christian, it was still very hands-off. It was still very, you need to prove that you can wash your face or we're going to pull the plug? There's two elements to that, I think. Uh, One is uh, Renault as a a race team. And you can just take uh, Otmar's recent comments that, for instance, let's take Mercedes. If they want to hire a guy, a girl, uh, someone new, they go through their HR channels, which is in-house, and everything is sorted out. If they want to do that at Renault or Alpine, they have to go to HR at Renault, back yeah. at, the, uh, at the motherland. And that is just, you can't work like that, especially not in an environment like Formula One. And apparently it looks like that is just the case with this team and still is somehow. Yeah. But I would also argue that it takes a, a Briatore to to make Alonso do these things. I, I, I think he's capable of doing these things all the time, but he needs a, a Flavio to... <laughs> To be able an, to an communicate them to the world, basically. <laughs> so that that teaming yeah. is, I think, poison to, oh, to oh, Formula man. One. So you've and, got you've got and, Alonso like a like a cheaterholic. He's there going like, no, I don't need to cheat today. Do you know I, what? I I'm gonna I, I'm gonna go a few days without cheating. But then you've got Briatore going, oh, go on, just have one cheat down the pub with the lads, and then before you know I, it, I, he's gorging on cheating. Yeah, but he's not a cheater. I wouldn't call Alonso a cheater. Sorry, Steve, but you probably have another argument here. But I wouldn't call him a cheater. I would say he's prone to do what it takes to win. If he's not a cheater, why the hell is Briatore still his manager? Yeah, that is that is a very strange um, fact. And yeah. you know what? Actually, he's also still the manager of uh, Mark Webber, isn't he? If uh, Mark still drives, yes, he is. Yes, and he is. he's 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 managing other uh, racing talents, and he's sort of like the 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 only leftover from the Bernie era. Uh, as... well, I thought that he got banned for life. How come he's uh, back yeah. into the business? Well, it wasn't a ban for life. It was a, an indefinite ban. So I think they've sort of 
try to brush it under the carpet and you see him you see him pop- popping up on the grid now now and then talking to people and i have to say every time the, the microphone is pointed at him in the pit lane or whatever you go what why are we speaking to him and there are photos of him having dinner with you know toto and um you know the rest of them stroll and whatever else he pops up i, I just oh. don't understand why he has such you know cachet with the formula 1 fraternity okay well before we start clutching our, our pearls i think there's a there's a deeper issue which is this is a one of the few times where you you see a conspiracy and it gets then later confirmed so there's lots of things where we get accused of a mad conspiracy theory tinfoil hat and if it had never been admitted if it had never been because it was nelson pk jr who crashed on purpose causing the safety car that i think outed it i don't know his motivation but he he outed it and and declared it to the world if he hadn't have done that, and I had been here going, I reckon that's dodgy. Like I reckon, if we'd have had a podcast then, if I'd have said, I reckon they did that on purpose, the timing was perfect. I, in fact, here's what I would have said. I'd have said, I'm not saying Nelson Piquet Jr. crashed on purpose, but if you wanted to benefit the Renault number one driver in the most extreme way, that is exactly how you would have done it. And people would have said, I'm nuts, Christian. They would have been calling me a crazy tinfoil hat merchant. I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think I remember from the vibe going on in Formula One, uh, already during the race, even before the race was over, everyone was like, no, that we all know that can't just be like a coincidence that he pits and then everyone knew it and everyone knew with these people that they were properly right. But could they prove it? That is the nature of Formula One, isn't it? Somehow. I'm not I'm not saying I'm liking it or supporting it. I think it's awful and I think they, they got what they deserved or they didn't get all they deserved. But they uh, cheat where they can to, and to they, win. Yeah. So. A lot of people cheat. Like And, and Wes is saying that Nelson Piquet Jr. Hello, our live chat, our patron live chat, by the way patreon.com forward slash missed apex thanks for supporting us wes says nelson pk got sacked uh, from Renault, and that's why he came public and that's the problem with conspiracies and that's why yeah. most conspiracies fall apart because you're always gonna you're always gonna irritate something uh and uh, a podcast the podcast i was listening to earlier skeptics guide to the universe said if you can't fit all your conspirators in one room then it's not going to work but even in this relatively small room you know, Nelson PK Jr. was was the leak. So we we find ourselves in a situation where this is probably one of the worst cases of deliberate cheating that we can confirm. And well, there's been there's been plenty of deliberate cheating over the years. Yeah, but what? Yeah, but I'm talking about one that we know, we can say absolutely this definitely was confirmed, verified cheating. Well, yes, there have been some others too, but yeah, it was certainly one of the most blatant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, if you look at the crash, uh, you, you know, Christian, you were saying that everyone thought it was dodgy at the time. If you look at the replay, I've never looked at the replay with the fresh eyes of now knowing it was admittedly deliberate. He comes around the left hander, I think, intending to hit the wall on the right and misses. And you can see that he then spins up the throttle to make sure that he then goes into the left hand side. Like, it's incredible. Like, you look back at it now and you go, oh, wow, no, that is. There's no other reason to do that. I'm pretty sure he did the exact same mistake the year after. Or was it someone else who crashed the exact same way the year after? 
You're not thinking of so Perez at Monaco, are you? No, it, th- this was in Singapore on the exact same place, but uh, which yeah, uh, 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 can differ the the opinion that it wasn't a real crash. But uh, I uh, I reckon uh, Spanos is right. If you look at it from the perspective of knowing he's told to crash, it's yeah. just it's hard to unsee it. So have a look yeah. at have a look at the viewpoint like head on, so that he's coming out of the corner and you can see the, the nose of the car as it comes in. Like it's it's hilarious in a way, but it's also pretty tragic because he claims that he was put under pressure. Like he was, it was implied he might lose his drive if he didn't do it. But he like his whole rear quarter sails into that wall pretty hard, and he was fine. He was completely fine. But you're you're trusting a lot to the lap of the gods at that point. Anytime you deliberately throw an F1 car into the wall, you're you're risking serious injury. So number one, thank goodness, you know he he got away with that if you like and and that the penalty was was only later on and more technical rather than you know uh, mortal but where where this now intersects modern f1 news is felipe massa claims that if that hadn't have happened in fact let's let's read the the lawyer statement here uh, felipe massa's lawyer says we have had enough information in time to investigate this matter according to the statutes we should have cancelled the race in singapore under these conditions that means it would never have happened in regards to the World Cup standings. Then Felipe Massa would become world champion and not Lewis Hamilton. This has come about because there was an interview around a year ago where Bernie Eccleston had said, well, we are, well, it was reported to have said, we knew at the time that that had been done and we kept it quiet. And this seems to be why the legal case is going forward. So as I said, I am... I'm. I'm championing Felipe Massa's cause. That race was an absolute shambles. We've established it, Steve. You and I, we've just had a conversation where we have established that that race was a shambles. The whole race should be cancelled and no points awarded. And therefore, Felipe Massa is the 2008 world champion. Yes, but let's at least look at it from the start. Um, A little earlier, uh, this came about uh, with an interview with Bernie in March. Uh, and then this week, Bernie says he can't remember <laughs> having given so that fun. interview. So, Your Honour, if Mr. Eccleston can't remember an interview from March of this year, how can he remember anything that went on in 2008? So, you know, I put to you, Your Honour, that um, that Mr. Eccleston is uh, wrong in his, you know, recollection of knowing about yeah, that. Yeah, certainly if the whole case revolves around Bernie Eccleston going, that's right, I did say that to that. That, that outlet, and I'm going to stand here in court and say that, that doesn't seem to be a path that is available to them because Eccleston is purely going, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, the other the other thing is that uh, Eccleston may have, you know, more skin in this game. You know, he, he, I don't think it's any secret that he's a bit miffed at the way he's been treated by Liberty, you know, after they took over, and he's has a reputation mm. for liking to make inflammatory statements from time to time so it may maybe just another instance of that bernie eccleston though he is an absolute chaos merchant he is one of these he you interview him you put a microphone in front of him and he'll say whatever he reckons at the time i don't think it's always malicious i don't think he's always lying i think he's just very happy to give a, a stream of consciousness of what he happens to be thinking and then if you go okay will you now say that in court under oath that focuses the mind a little bit christian Sounds like uh, the the F one's Rudolf Giuliani. I'm right. Not, I hope I'm not being too political here, but uh, yeah. 
I, I would say I don't think Philippe Massa would would uh, go public with a case like this unless he has some ground to to base uh, the, the lawsuit on. And and when we're talking legal matters, things are not uh, as they are in the mm-hmm. real world always. So uh, what what I read into this is uh, he's looking for. Um, financial benefit here he's looking he, he's looking for a way to win without having the the championship awarded to him because he's not going to change the history books but what he could do is he could possibly argue that if uh, the sporting regulatory body knew about this and didn't act in a matter that is according to the rules yada 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 they prohibited prohibited him from making an earning, et cetera. Mm. Uh, I think legally you could make that case um, if you have the right uh, evidence, of course, and a, a Bernie Egglestone interview saying stuff like that and some rumors about uh, Max Mosley and Bernie knowing about it back in the days and all sorts of things could possibly end in, in Massa getting a financial winning here. And it, that wouldn't change the history book still. But if that happens... He will have the the law's word of him actually winning, or at least being yeah. considered the winner. And I think this is what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, even even if they say, well, we can't change the result, but we get what you're going for here. Here's $10 million. That's going to be enough for the, the fan base, for everyone on Twitter to go, see, he's the rightful champion. See, Steve? And I, and, and I Steve, and I think he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can only say that the um, financial side of it can 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 be the only reason that he's doing Perhaps. this. Uh, I don't think that he really has a leg to stand on. I'd like to know who the lawyers are that are advising him. My initial thought was perhaps his lawyers are, in fact, the cast-off lawyers from a certain ex-US president. Oh, and, they've guys, moved, and they've moved to Brazil. You guys are not That's helping me at all here. We are a politically neutral outlet <laughs> unless you pay any attention to our social media whatsoever. Uh, but look, uh, Matt Trump is, is not here today, but he's done a lot of great work in the notes. And he, he's actually done a lot of, of, of research for us here. And he has said that in 2008, the International Sporting Code... 151C. Yeah, this is how good Matt is at stuff like this. So according to the International Sporting Code at the time, the penalty for fraudulent conduct or an act prejudicial to the competition has a, a stated list of penalties. And they include a reprimand, fines, time penalty, exclusion from the event, suspension from F1 or disqualification as well. So the stewards would be limited to penalties in that sporting regulation from 2008. There's no provision for the event to be cancelled. And so the maths goes, if Fernando Alonso is disqualified from that event and Renault is disqualified, then he doesn't get the 10 points for the win. Rosberg wins that race. Lewis Hamilton is promoted to, to second. And Felipe Massa is promoted from 13th to 12th and still doesn't score points. And so in the normal course of events, even if you decided to ban Renault from that event, and in fact, Matt's done the maths, if you ban Renault from every event in 2008, it doesn't change the outcome. The only outcome that can possibly change it is for 
Singapore Grand Prix as a whole to be completely cancelled. And there's no precedent for for a race being cancelled, Steve, but there is plenty of precedent for people who are cheating being disqualified. So like Schumacher hitting Villeneuve in 97, he got all his championship points removed. They didn't cancel the event in which he cheated. Uh, no, that's quite true. And I think in this case, uh, if you're going to, you know, bring about some sort of reprimand for what went on, then the only course of action to them would be to disqualify Renault and Alonso, the whole team, from that particular race. <clears throat> and the, the truth is, and again, this comes from Matt, that uh, if you if they did that, then the change in points would actually see Hamilton end up with an extra point at the end of the year. So um, Massa's, you know, kind of argument that if if uh, if we take into yeah. account what happened at Singapore and get rid of them, then I I think I would be the winner of the race, you know, because um, um, I, I will get more points at the end of the year. He only lost by one point, I think it was yeah. at, at the end of the year. Um, so I, I think it's kind of um, there is no avenue for him to be able to claim that he could win the championship. I don't think so either. And the, the thing is, it gets sadder when, and I, and I mean this, I, sadder, I genuinely mean, I, I feel like this, this lawsuit is sad and it's actually tarnishing what, what he'd left behind as a pretty good legacy in 2008. He fought valiantly in 2008. He gave absolutely everything for his 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 career, his country, his team. And if you remember the scenes in Interlagos when Hamilton clinched that title, Massa was, if that's a movie, Massa's the hero of that movie. Hamilton's basically getting booed. Yeah, it, it, it's shocking. The Brazilian fans love Hamilton now, but then it, they were all over him. Massa is on the podium, pumping his chest, seeing himself as kind of this, um, you know, fallen hero, a, a victor in all but the points. And and people were proud of him for that. But now people are shining a spotlight in that 2008 season. And you can easily point at a bunch of stuff like Ferrari were not doing well with pit stops. That's That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Ferrari were not doing well with safely releasing after pit stops. They weren't doing particularly well with their fuel rig. Massa had thrown away result after result due to poor driving. He had, well, Christian, 2008 at Silverstone, where Hamilton was masterful in the rain. I mean, you could look at that and you could say, for that race alone, look at your own performance and don't try and say that you should now, 15 years later, be declared world champion. I think I can go into minute details uh, yeah, when so it comes to that. Formula One, especially, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and for all the reasons Steve just talked about and what's in our notes, and the, there's all these scenarios if we did this and that, uh, I think there's a reason why we never go into this kind of talking in sports. Because if let's just say that offside didn't count. Yeah. You, you can't say that, right? <laughs> so that is why the, oh. all this is a little bit sad. Also, because of the reasons you talked about, the Spanners, Massa was actually the hero of 2008. And uh, when he, he quit, even the second time he quit, everyone was applauding him and mm. stuff. He, he He's a great guy and was a great racer. This does nothing good for him, even if he wins a couple of dollars, I think. And mm. he's not going to win the thing he hopes to win. 
Felipe, baby, we all love you, but maybe it's time to let it go. All right. Should tall drivers be discriminated against? I think yes, uh, we should definitely. I know some people say eat the rich. I say eat the tall. Uh, You tall people, you have basketball. When I play basketball, and I do love, I love basketball. I'm half Filipino. And for a nation whose average male height is is about 5'2", I think, why basketball is the national sport, I, I don't know why. But Filipinas, they love their basketball. It's a national tragedy. But they don't play with a shorter hoop. No one gives Filipinos a bigger bucket or a ladder to play basketball. But I see time and time again, whenever you go down the go-kart track, people say, oh, it's not fair, I'm tall. I'm like a big sail. Oh, my, my height adds, adds weight uh, to the cart and therefore I'm heavier. I'm like, no, you've got basketball and being overly represented in management positions. Go do that. Tall people have a lot of advantages. Leave leave motorsport for us, Christian. Leave motorsport for us. I don't think they're being fair to gravity. Uh, it's <laughs> just come down here, basically, is how I'm feeling about it. And yeah. what's up with all the concerts where you stand there tall and having exactly. a blast? Exactly. You people have so, got, the tall people, you've got gigs where you're ne- your view is never blocked. You're a problem in the exactly. cinema. Um, exactly. you're, not, you're not suffering in the cinema. But it's Nico Hulkenberg, Christian, that says... Being six foot tall cost me the 2013 Ferrari seat. I never got a response where they said, I'm sorry, we turned you down because you're you're too tall. Um, but I'm pretty sure this hindered me because back then, before 2019, there was packaging issues, less space, more weight. And that was reported in motorsport.com. But that's a serious issue for, for some drivers on the on the grid. And, and, and not just that, Nowadays- Christian, not just that, Christian, but also in their junior career. Maybe in their junior career. I mean, uh, we have all tried that karting experience at the uh, the Poldarm or whatever it's called in English, uh, where you uh, you go to uh, to the karting track and you're the tallest or the heaviest, and you lose, and you yeah. blame it all on your weight. And I think that Hulkenberg is a little bit of this here because what racing drivers are masters at, even from like the get go and until they basically leave Earth is blaming something else <laughs> right, than yes. their actual driving on why they didn't win. Uh, okay, yeah, good and point. Yeah. if you're a little bit taller, you're always going to pinpoint, yeah, but you know, I'm six foot two. Yeah. So, you know, but we have this, like, uh, nowadays, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't escape this uh, fact that nowadays the, the seat and the driver has to weigh 80 kilos. Mm-hmm. So if you're like a Sonoda and you're, fi- I think he's 54 kilograms, uh, you have to put a lot uh, of ballast. 63, into the seat. 63, I think Sonoda is. He's 63. I think so. I read I'll 54 check, I'll and I thought that. it was a little low, yeah. but it sounded good, so I said it anyways. So I did look that um, up earlier. So I do I do actually have everyone's weight and height in here. So um, Sonoda, oh no, you're right, you're right, sorry. 54 kilograms. I'd missed that as the outlier, uh, outlier at 1.59 meters. So obviously in his junior karting career, that would have been an advantage. But I love what you're saying about everyone looking for excuses because even as uh, I'm 170 so I'm probably like the ideal height for karting but I, I have relatively short arms and like so I'm like a I'm like a T-Rex <laughs> so uh, when I get into the car uh, you can adjust your seating position and Brad was was teaching me Brad Philpot was teaching me that like okay if you prefer more you know understeer uh, which I do I prefer kind of getting my work done earlier in the corner you move your seat to the rear and that's a bit more of a stable understeery car. You move your weight forward in the seat 
and you can generate a bit more oversteer. But my arms will only reach on the most forward section. So I always have that excuse. It's like, I can only put my bum forward because that's the only seat position where I can reach the steering wheel. Therefore, I have to have an oversteery cart where I, where I don't want one. Generally, I do feel like if you're a, a bigger driver, yes, you are going to be disadvantaged somewhat in your, in your career. But motorsport is inherently a, a medium by which you are going to be doing better if you're small. So I don't think anyone argues that a jockey uh, should, should carry extra ballast. Why, Steve? Why should you tall people uh, be, be pitied when it comes to motorsport? I don't know whether we should be pitied, but we should be included. And I think you've got to look and see that um, these days we have more tallish drivers than we've ever had before. I mean, you know, back in the 90s, if you were anything taller than about five foot six, <laughs> yeah. you just didn't get into a car. We've got who Albon, Hulkenberg, George Russell. Uh, who else is a tallie? Uh, okay, well, I can tell uh, you, actually, if you want. I Gasly? Have. Uh, no, Gasly's not. I know. So Gasly and Hamilton fall into a category of drivers who have a lot of muscle content. So um, actually, Hamilton and Gasly are, are two of the heavier drivers on the grid at 73 kilograms. But the interesting thing I was looking at was Lando Norris is the same height as me. Uh, yet he has uh, 11 kilograms lighter. So I look at I look at myself and I go, yes, that's right. I'm not lean. I'm not a marathon runner. Uh, when I look in the mirror in the morning, uh, but I'm 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 not. I'm, I'm strong enough. I'm not. I'm not particularly unhealthy. But I to lose uh, 10 kilograms, I'd have to lose a lot of fat. But also, I would have to limit what what muscle I could have as well. I'd have to go back in time and make sure I didn't thicken out by doing silly things like yomping around hills with with heavy weights. So these guys have to stay super, super lean. And if you look at George Russell, who's one of the tallest drivers on the grid, I, I can't remember if we listed the, the tall drivers, but it's Ocon, Russell, Hulkenberg, Sargent, and there's another one over six foot, but I'm, it's escaping me at the moment. Those guys are having to stay, stay mega, mega lean, Christian, to stay in race driver trim. Like a normal six foot guy isn't generally, even in most sports, a normal six-foot guy isn't going to come in at 73 kilograms. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a little bit like talking about basketball players. Uh, it's unfair for, for, for tiny people in basketball, basically. I think every sport will have uh, a certain type of human that fits <laughs> yes. it best. A certain sort type of, of human. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't think, uh, I'm not seeing Formula One as excluding. I think the 80 uh, kilograms uh, solution is pretty good. But of course, if you're two meters high, you're, you're going to be at a big disadvantage if you want to go car racing, right? Uh, but there will be other options for you that's maybe where you're better uh, uh, prepared physically, <laughs> so I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not actually seeing it as a. I remember it for myself. I used to cart with a good friend who's like twelve, thirteen, fourteen kilograms uh, lighter than me, and he was always quicker. And uh, I, I was like, yeah, that's because you know the weight. But then when we got the ballast on for the races, he was still <laughs> much faster than me. <laughs> so I, I think you can. Uh, I, I actually think racing is quite well prepared for that uh, to the, to a certain degree. So I don't see it as a problem. Uh, we did we, we did try that at Missed Apex. We did try just like making Brad carry weight to equalize it, and it it, it didn't make a difference in the end. He still he still yeah. beat everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and but but being Holdenberg probably isn't the easiest uh, because the mechanics will you will be hearing things like. Yeah, but there's not room for that because your your yeah. legs and uh, Sonora won't be hearing that. They will just move him around the car like a, a, a little teddy bear. <laughs> so uh, the drivers that are over six foot are Albon, Russell, Ocon, Hulk and Sargent. So when you look at Hulkenberg, the difference is Hulkenberg has more of a physique along the lines of Hamilton and Gasly, whereas Albon, Russell and Ocon are much more slender, if you like. Um, obviously, George Russell, he loves his Instagram and you can see he's he's very toned and very trim, uh, but Hulkenberg is probably the most normal shaped of those of, the, of those drivers. So you can probably but, tell. But even if you look at even if you look at Russell, uh, look at how high he sits in the car uh, compared yeah. to Hamilton, for instance. And that is not just because he wants to be a little bit higher. That is, uh, you want to be as low as possible. Uh, but he probably is at the limit at where uh, where his head can go, and I think that's a little bit limiting uh, mm. from a racing perspective as well. So, of course, there will be disadvantages. Good, and uh, and for that, I'm glad. Okay, Steve, uh, are you a fan of Mister Verstappen? Um, I think he's an excellent driver. Um, mm. I'm not. I'm not a fan of uh, his attitude or, you know, his lack of understanding that uh, racing has some rules and and uh, okay. attitude that needs to be brought to the game. Um, I think he's a, an incredible driver. I wish he drove for another team. I think it would be much more healthy for him. Now, that's interesting. So you think a Verstappen that was at McLaren would be a different Verstappen? Oh, a totally different. Mm. I think that he has been, um, um, you know, I think there are things that Red Bull bring 
you know, have forced upon him attitudes and things like that that uh, aren't healthy. And I think that uh, in another team, he would be a different person and a different driver. So the reason I'm asking you this, guys, is because if Verstappen is continuing his 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 sort of mission to let everybody know that at any minute he could quit F1. Uh, so this is on Autosport's website, and he says... Uh, is that the headline is Verstappen sometimes questions if hectic F1 lifestyle is still worth it. Formula One world champion Max Verstappen says he sometimes wonders if the championship's relentless time commitment is still worth it amid criticisms on its, on its expanding schedule. And I, I do wonder if you're like, if you're a fan of Max Verstappen, how does that come across to you that he would rather be playing the piano? Or he, as he says, it doesn't leave a lot of time for other things. So as a as a as a well travelled gentleman who's had to do jobs, I mean I've had a job. Christian, have you had a have you had a job? Have you jobbed before? You've jobbed before. Steve's jobbed before. Can you can you spell it? <laughs> yeah. Oh no. To be fair, Christian, you were a radio DJ and Ibiza, you know, international superstar DJ. So you is probably, that a job? <laughs> you probably don't know what a job is either. But he is describing a job. It takes yeah. up a lot of time, and I can't do all the stuff I want to do. I just want to say I've never heard anyone say what Steve just said because that is my philosophy 100% as well. But I'll get back to that. Uh, uh, I think uh, I think it's a little bit difficult being Max Verstappen even though he has it so easy up front. From a racing perspective, I mean, he can do whatever he wants and he's doing a, a like world-class job and he has been for years basically. But... If, I'm not sure he totally understands why the world is not just applauding him uh, from A to Z because some places he get booed and stuff like that. And I think that must mess a little bit with, uh, with the head of a championship leader. If people boo you and you haven't done anything wrong and he basically haven't done anything wrong this year, he's done no. everything right. He's not even been racing hardly on anyone. He's been taking his time because, you know, he's got the car. He can just do whatever he wants. I'll just take him to the next corner uh, kind of philosophy. So you can't really put a finger on his uh, 23 season. But would you, But doing that and still getting booed, I think that will mess with your head somehow. That's a really good uh, point, Christian, because he's been a delight this year. He's been personable he's been on track he hasn't done any of the things that that steve was talking about which is completely fair in 2021 and and before that so he's been a a gentleman racer he's been uh uh, charming on on the grid uh on his live streams he looks a very personable family man so he's done everything right and then he turns up and not only is he booed but you see media reports where people are saying he's ruining f1 and you go, well, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I'm driving as well as yeah, I can. Exactly. I'm, I'm being polite. I'm sticking to all the rules. You, you, you criticised me when I was shoving people off track. I'm not shoving people off track anymore. You criticised me when I was, uh, you know, being outspoken. Well, I'm not being outspoken anymore. What, what more can I do? And yet he's never been less popular in a way. Steve? Well, you've got to call into, um, you know, account um, some of the things that he says. <sighs> I don't think that he is a particularly committed racing driver. Um, Ooh, he said during email. the week, and this was <laughs> this was quoted in Motorsport Week, that he would rather stay at home than race in the F1 midfield. Yes. Now, that's if every if every racing driver had that attitude, we wouldn't have a, a Formula One competition. 
not everybody can win all the time. And, you know, any realistic racing driver will know that, sure, he might be able to win, you know, during periods, but it's terribly uh, unrealistic to expect that uh, I can win. If I'm a driver, I can win uh, every yeah. race all the time. So that is actually one of the key things from from that that interview, which is saying, well, I would, if 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 Red Bull was to, to drop the ball and not be racing, you know, would he would he stay with Red Bull? Would he consider, it was a loaded question, would he consider leaving uh, or not finishing his contract? And he said, well, yeah, it would take a lot for that to happen because Red Bull's pretty brilliant, but I would I would rather stay at home than have three years in the midfield. You know, that's interesting. Like, is is that okay? Like, is that is that allowed, Christian? Like, I mean, people don't like to lose. So what he's basically said is, I don't want to keep turning up and losing. That kind of feels fair. Maybe <laughs> sometimes you get a little bit carried away with the uh, with the results of things things you're saying. So when you're a public figure like uh, Max Verstappen or all the other Formula One drivers for that matter, uh, when you drop a ball somewhere. And you see how the world reacts to it, how the media reacts to it. You you sort of get a sense of where is your playing area. And uh, at, at this point in time, we have a lot of Formula One drivers who are very capable of communicating themselves and branding themselves. And in that environment, I think maybe he uh, he's a little bit disadvantaged. Uh, he was looking very good when partnering with uh, Ricciardo, but I think he feels a little bit alone in that respect. And uh, th- during the last couple of years, he's had uh, like headlines from saying stuff like, well, I don't care, you know, like uh, distancing himself from Formula One in some ways. And a lot of his uh, fan groups have been supporting that. Yeah, he can do whatever he wants. And I think he's being misled a little bit by the reactions he got from saying stuff like that. I don't think, I don't know Max Verstappen at all, uh, (laughs) but what I'm seeing is a guy who's so dedicated to his craft and he's so brilliantly uh, showing us how it's done uh, these days. Uh, He should be celebrated. He should be uh, in an environment where he feels celebrated and where he uh, feels happy about what he's accomplishing these days. Yeah. Yes, and yeah, so he's 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 not he doesn't seem to be getting that satisfaction. And I've I've said this a few times, Steve. He does seem like one of the unhappiest F one champions. As in, most people when they're having that period of domination, they're bullish and they're really kind of all over it, and they feel like they're owning that space. Whereas, really, since twenty twenty one, all we've heard from Verstappen with regards to the future is, ah, I don't know. I I'd, I'd like to to do other things, but it, to be fair to him. If you're in your 20s and you've had a job where you're away all the time, he hasn't had a chance to have just a normal life at home. He has, you know, extended family, he has a partner, there's children in his life, and he's never had just the chance to just to chill. No, but he's had the chance to earn how many hundreds of millions of dollars? True. I mean, you, you can't have everything in life, you know, exactly as you want it. Why now, not? Why can I? <laughs> life isn't like that. Um, I'm, and I'm not begrudging the fact that he is paid a lot of money to do what he does very well. But you've got to give a little bit back. If if he wants to be lauded as, you know, the great champion driver that he is, then he should be aware that, you know, he is given that epitaph 
um, by the fans because they like him and he's got to be engaged with them. He can't just say, look, you know, I'm here, I'll, I'll race until I'm winning and earning lots of money. As soon as the team I'm with can't win a race, then I'm going to you know, rip off and go and do something else, you know, raise ducks or mm, okay. you know, become a farmer or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, Brad. Well, the, the um, old um, the football manager thing was, uh, you know, I'm going to retire and, and, and open a pub. That used to be the old thing in the 90s. But uh, I think it's worth noting Max Verstappen doesn't owe us anything. I think what you're talking about is winning hearts and minds. And, like, it's a big assumption that he cares about that or should care about that. Of course he should care about it because it's, you know, he's where he is and doing very well at it, partly because, well, he's a good driver, um, but he has a big fan base too. And they're very vocal and, you know very outspoken um i know and and, yeah i know you know more than most people um but i think that he should you know he should be a little aware of that and not just come out and say oh well look i don't care anymore i mean how is that doing his fan base any good at all the thing is he 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 certainly still cares about racing he's setting up a gt3 team i think will start from 2024 he's very serious about his uh, sim racing so it's not because he's not a driver at heart or doesn't burn for the sport anymore. I think it has it has to do with Formula One just being the beast it is. And by saying that, I mean it's not just racing. Formula One is maybe 35% racing during a race weekend for the drivers. A lot of other stuff happens. And when you when you have that, on your shoulders of the 21 Abu Dhabi. I know we're not going to mention it. No, let's revisit all in detail. (laughs) (laughs) But you have all this baggage on your shoulder. Uh, I think it can get a bit, I don't know, maybe just taking you in direction you shouldn't go. He should uh, uh, basically a fresh team for Max Verstappen, uh, maybe in a different series, would open his uh, heart to racing. Okay, so I did catch this over over the the weekend, but I can't remember, apologies, I can't remember where this this quote came from, but he said, I would race for Mercedes, but they race differently to to Red Bull. If I could change a few things, then then I would I would race for Mercedes. And it's it's hard not to infer that, you know, Mercedes generally kind of have a, a broadly uh, equal driver package, even if even if I, I feel like they've they've been more in favor of, of Hamilton over the years. You know, it's a broadly equal status team. Whereas Helmut Marco has specifically said there are we wouldn't have Lewis Hamilton with Verstappen because you need a number one and a number two. So like he's he's saying that out loud. This is how Red Bull do it, and Verstappen is kind of going, "Well, I would race for Mercedes, but I think they would have to do things the way we do things." For me, in fact, the quote was Christian. It was. If if they want me enough, they would adapt to how I would want the team to be. It was Mercedes who had their championship taken away, right, by Red Bull, and it's still Red Bull all the time talking about Mercedes this and that. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't get it. <laughs> What's so important about Mercedes from a Red Bull perspective that you have to constantly say something bad about that's, that? No, I, that's I, interesting. I totally don't Do you understand. Know what? No, it's really interesting because you have to remember, though, that they, they basically, that this, this current Red Bull team and the, the whole of Verstappen's career was in the shadow of a dominant Mercedes Death Star. So for me growing yeah. up, 
Schumacher and Red Bull were uh, and and Ferrari were the Death Star, and I would have taken like any champion. Maybe that's why I like Alonso because I really can't understand why I do. Every time an Alonso topic comes up, I'm criticizing him, but then I go, yeah, but I'm an Alonso fan <laughs> because he mm-hmm. was the person that came in and gave us hope, you know, against Fernando Alonso. So I think a lot of the current era of F1 is in context of F1, uh, of of Mercedes dominating F1. So when you hear a lot of these comments, you know, he even though he is now in the mothership, he is now in the Death Star, there's almost an imposter syndrome where you have to keep referring to Mercedes and the big the big tree that cast a shadow over them for, for all those years. Well, I'll agree with with that. Um, I think that part of the problem with Red Bull and the team's attitude is that they've fallen into uh, a kind of an area where they think the only way they are going to be able to uh, beat Mercedes and control Mercedes, that sort of thing, um, in the competition, is to go about it in a, what's the right word? They're going to do anything and everything they possibly can, whether it's considered kosher, right, yeah. uh, whether it's considered, you know, a nice way to go about it. Um, and I think that that arises from a basic insecurity that comes yeah. from the team. And I think that you know, that's part of what I was talking about, that they have infected Max with perhaps a wrong set of values and a wrong set of ways to do things mm. I, I actually think that the mercedes domination has left a scar on a lot of the teams so uh, when mercedes would were, were dominating in 2014 2015 particularly they felt you you almost sensed an embarrassment about far how far away ahead they were and they were almost holding up upgrades and i don't think that's i think that's an open secret that they were holding you know some upgrades back because they didn't want to show how how far they were ahead and then there was the odd instance like Bahrain 2024 that we talked about last week where suddenly Rosberg and Hamilton were head-to-head and, uh, and they had no choice but to show their full pace. And all of Mercedes went, ooh, that's kind of, that's given the game away a little bit. But I think Mercedes, they knew for those three years that they were in this very unique uh, position where they were dominating F1 and they felt a, a, a bit of responsibility to, to kind of protect F1 from their own dominance because they didn't have the scarring of a, of a, of a mothership, of a Death Star before them. I think Red Bull now don't feel that, that sense of responsibility because they still feel like they are the underdog. They're still a bit aggrieved by you know, the Mercedes domination. And, and I, I think they still see themselves as an underdog, whereas the rest of the world is seeing them as the Death Star. But you you can't be an underdog after twenty one and after twenty two with the yeah. cost cap thing, and now have a car that's so much fun. that those things can't work together. You you have to accept you are now the Death Star, <laughs> and that when when you are the Death Star, that if you don't want to be perceived as the bad guys, then you have to do a whole lot of PR work. And that PR work cannot consist of someone saying, we don't want Lewis Hamilton or someone saying, if I have to go there, I have to change for my, I mean, those things just doesn't work together. You have to be a little bit, yeah, hold yourself back a little bit, I think, at least if you want to build a good reputation, but also it's, it's a sport. So I guess it's also part of what it's all about, right? 
Yeah, so I, I think I'll, I'll wrap this up by defending Verstappen because we're, we're, we're sort of asking Max Verstappen to fit a mould of F1 champions of the past. And we're asking him to be the F1 champion that we would put in a movie version of a textbook F1 champion. And he's not, because he's not the same as the champions that have come in the past. He is in his own mould. And Lewis Hamilton had the same thing, where people expected Lewis Hamilton to be Lord Farquhar of West Sussex, and he wasn't. And he, he came under that criticism. I think Verstappen, again, he's, he's not fitting a mould of you know, a classic driver from yesteryear who doesn't understand work-life balance. And I think basically what he's being criticised for at the moment is going, hey, I'd quite like a work-life balance, which is actually a pretty uncontroversial thing to say. Well, if it, that might be true. But in that case, if you want a work-life balance, Max, go and get a job that gives it to you. You might earn, you know, $50 million a year, but you'll have some more time. Christian? I heard a comment from the new team principal at uh, Alpine, and I think uh, Max Verstappen's comment is water, uh, while his is whiskey. There will be no impact at all, he said. I think that is uh, that is the, maybe perhaps the new Red Bull team in communication skills. <laughs> And ending the show and, and staying with Verstappen dominance a little bit, I will have the, the last news story. And I, I'm sorry if the, the show is slightly curtailed. And you could probably tell on the YouTube by the volumes of sweat and, and anxiety dripping from me that we have had a, very, a number of unexpected technical issues uh, this week. So we're going to give ourselves a bit of slack and a bit of time to get these sorted before UK bedtime. But sticking with Verstappen's performance... There, there has been uh, some, some published figures by uh, a journalist called, and I apologise for mispronouncing, Sabiaskshi Biskwas, and, and there was a report there that despite maximum efforts, Formula One has lost nearly 650,000, 650,000, how do you say that? 600,500 of its American audience due to Max Verstappen and its Red Bull dem- domination. So... I'm a student of F1 popularity stats. I'm always tracking it because this project depends on it. And what we found is normally, aside from 2021, the podcast figures tend to peak around the German Grand Prix. And now there's no German Grand Prix. They tend to peak around the Hungarian Grand Prix. So it's fairly normal, I think, for F1 fans to enter the season with hope. And once a team or a driver starts to dominate, the interest kind of wanes. And it's not like people are going, ah, Lewis Hamilton's winning this season or oh, Max Verstappen's winning this season. I'm not watching anymore. They're just less desperate to consume the F1 content. So instead of needing to drink in every single race, they'll catch a race if it's on. Or, you know, they'll catch the podcast if the result kind of pleased them. And I, I remember, you know, being a non-podcaster and... When there was a good race, I'd be desperate to tune in to an F1 podcast. If it was just ah the same old driver winning again, and this is, you know, I'm talking 2013 here with Sebastian Vettel. Oh, Vettel won by 20 seconds again. Yeah, I watched the race, but I might not be desperate to consume every little bit of content that, that came after it. So what we've seen in our stats this season is, is has been a perfectly kind of normal uh, peak up to the middle of the European season. And then it starts to die down as people go, well, 
you know, the competition is over. Therefore, you know, we don't have to absorb every kind of fiber of Formula One content. 2021 was absolutely the exception. And I think Formula One was was looking for that kind of, of, of result. I think Formula One did things to, I don't want to say manufacture, but they they didn't discourage and they didn't, you know, they didn't try to not make it so that the Mercedes would be kind of slightly pulled back and they got the result they wanted. But now, 2022, the Ferrari challenge failed to emerge. 2023, Mercedes and Ferrari have, you know, despite having solved porpoising, Mercedes haven't been able to get up to the front and, and Ferrari have, have really not even matched their 2022 level of competition. There is now a dominance. And that's not rare. Hamilton was doing that in 2019 and 2020. The difference is this time that they're throwing away the massive peak in audience, the massive rush of goodwill and interest from a huge American audience. So you have to wonder, are F1 sitting there and thinking, ooh, we, we've let this go on too long. This time we've messed up. Like Christian, it is perfectly normal for teams to dominate in Formula One. But never before has a period of domination wasted such a potential audience. I think we are in a never before time for Formula One. Uh, and I think we can, if we should stay within the Netflix narrative, uh, let's take an, a Netflix uh, perspective and look at the series they did at Stranger Things. When Stranger Things was released, everything exploded. It was uh, House of Cards had uh, launched uh, Netflix, but Stranger Things did an amazing job for the youth and stuff like that on Netflix, where Formula One experienced the same thing on Netflix. Like It's like a s second part of uh, the world who suddenly joins in. And when you see an uptick like that, you will always get like a uh, fade out, like uh, a decline will follow. That's just inevitable. And when I read figures like 25% uh, slow or decline, uh, but yet an uptick in rural areas in the States, that's just, that sounds very healthy to me. Uh, you would expect like that 20, 25% uh, downtick uh, after such a high of like 21. And even seeing the team that was supposed to channel uh, challenge the winner from 21 was Mercedes and they didn't do anything either. So you basically had a non-season 22. Uh, this is still very good numbers from uh, from that perspective, I, I, I think. And also, uh, I would say, when we have a year like this, um, what it leads into is an extreme build-up to 24. We want to see the challenger. Maybe we won't have a challenger, but, but we all know it starts even before the season ends. So... I'm seeing good numbers, and I can see Steve is eager to come. <laughs> well, I happen to agree with you. Um, Boring. I've spent I, I've <laughs> spent all all of my life involved in television and media, and been involved in lots of programs where rate. You know, we each week we sat and waited for the ratings to come in. You know, so that we could gauge whether we'd be doing the right thing. Inevitably, you will get a rise in ratings. It will come to a peak and then it will begin to slowly flatten out. That is just the way the algorithm, you know, the algorithm for audiences work. Now, Formula One has had a, a big boost in the arm from Netflix. The Drive to Survive series came along 
and introduced uh, F1 to a huge audience that really knew nothing about it before. Um, and they started to watch and the numbers went up in huge, you know, by huge amounts and, and they started going to all the races, particularly in America. Um, the unfortunate part about it is that a whole bunch of those people that started watching uh, Formula One through Drive to Survive aren't really Formula One fans. They're fans of a new event. If it had been, um, I mean, look what happened with what was the Korean um, series where everyone got killed that came <laughs> out on Net Netflix. That had a huge audience, but it only lasted one season. Yes. Uh, people will come, come to Netflix. They will, you know, they got on board with the drive to survive, and in fact, they got on board for about three years, which is excellent, you know, performance from them. Squid Games, Squid Games. By the uh, way, sorry, that was killing yeah, me. Squid, squid Games, game. Squid Games. That's the one. Um, a, a lot of the people who started watching during Drive to Survive aren't going to keep watching it because the uh, novelty has begun to wear off. They're now going back and watching what they what they've been brought up with: football, baseball, you know, those sorts yeah. of things re-engaging with those we can't expect that the figures for formula one are going to continue to keep rising yeah. and rising ad infinitum that's just totally unrealistic well i mean look, even on this project steve you know we've we, we were obsessed with the the stats the show gets and so what we'll notice is oh i'm getting a bit more abuse online and you go hang on let's let's dig into the stats and that what normally that means is like a bunch of people have found us from like a a reddit yeah. post or being promoted on such and such a thing or getting mentioned on something. And so let's say a thousand new people find us. Out of that thousand, like 200 will immediately go, that Spanners guy, oh my God, what a turnip. Like, he's annoying. I hate him. I like I hate him with a vengeance. 50 of them will go, I'm going to write uh, an iTunes review to that effect. Oh, by the way, please leave us an iTunes review if you enjoy what we're doing. Um, but the hope is if we get a spike of a thousand and we can get a hundred people to go. I'm going to subscribe. This is this is my regular, you know, thing that I'm going to listen to now on a Monday. But like we see that as a win, don't we? So it's not like we don't see the thousand and then go. Oh, but we lost nine hundred of those. Oh, can, no. can, can, can I ask a sorry. question about the numbers here, Spanners? Yeah. Do you, I mean, haven't uh, you? Don't have to say how many listens. No, I will but say. Haven't the numbers been like uh, like healthy, inclining all the time? For a podcast like this. Oh, yeah. And also, like, you have to look at our relative chart position as well to see where we are. Kind of like if you look in the Spotify charts or if you look at the iTunes charts, we're regularly the fourth or fifth highest uh, F1 podcast. And and that hasn't changed whether our numbers nice. are going up or down. And I speak to a lot of other F1 podcast content creators and, and they all were from the beginning of the season, like maybe like four or five races in. They were saying, oh, our numbers are are down compared to 2022. We only started seeing a drop at our normal point, kind of post-mid-European season. Um, but uh, so, so are you telling yeah. me people would likes listening to old men who's <laughs> not really experts or anything? No, no, Just no, no, talking no, no. into mics about Formula One. <laughs> no, well, well, I mean, look, if you look at the, the top podcast in the US, that's The Ringer F1. And that's because yeah. they have very good hosts and an amazingly attractive and handsome uh, expert that they bring on. And I said to them, I'm not an expert, but I'm happy to give you my opinions. And that's you know the most popular podcast in the, the US. Um, and then the BBC, which is solid, is is top in Britain and 
second in the, or third in the US. Um, the P1 podcast with Matt and Tommy, the XWTF1 guys, is popular across both regions. And then behind those three, it's us and the race media kind of swapping positions. And that's been fairly consistent, whether or not the figures are going up or down. So our relative position is fine. Um, but I, I, I think there's, there's hardly anyone at F1 content creators who wouldn't take a Hamilton victory in Zandvoort. Like every F1 commentator, every F1 content creator, every broadcasting platform would take that and say, yes, please inject that into my veins. Verstappen can win the title, but if he didn't win another race for the rest of the season, we'd be happy. So I think there's no doubt that the domination is going to hurt figures. But will people tune back in next season to see if that's changed? That's the question. And what is the Red Bull trick? <laughs> what are they doing? What are those? <laughs> can you answer that, Steve? I mean, yeah. And if you can, could, could. could you tell Mercedes or, or McLaren? <laughs> yeah. I actually read somewhere that uh, uh, there's some strakes on the new Red Bull floor that is copied from the photo of the Mercedes floor from the Monaco being lifted into the air, which says a lot that if Red Bull even copies a little tiny bit from the Mercedes floor. It says a lot about how Formula One is working, doesn't it? Well, it probably says a lot about the genius of Adrian Newey, that he can take something you know, seen yeah. on the bottom of the <laughs> Mercedes car and then make it work better on the bottom of his. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I'm not sure if it's said enough on this podcast, but Adrian Newey hats off. It's not the first time he does it. And he, he does it so well this year, so no one knows how to catch them. And it's... I mean that is that is quite amazing. Okay, so he is an amazing man. Yeah, but look, all I would say from this is, look, Red Bull deserve the the dominance. Max Verstappen deserves these these championships. But I think never before have Formula One had an opportunity to capture the U.S. market, which has always been the goal. And Formula One has never really had a problem with making regulations to bring back a dominant team or to try to bring back a dominant team. So it does just feel like a little bit of a missed opportunity. And as a Lewis Hamilton fan, you're obviously, you're more than entitled to say you're only saying that because it's Red Bull domination and you weren't complaining when it was Mercedes domination. No, I wasn't complaining when it was Mercedes domination, but I was at the time expressing sympathy as to why interest might have waned by mid-season. If we want to end up the Max Verstappen domination talk, and we were to pick another team on the current grid he should drive for, which one would you pick? Uh, oh, okay. uh, Haas. I think he should... I think Haas. I'm going to pick Haas, and I'll tell you why. Because Helmut Marko says that Max Verstappen would still be putting it on pole if he was driving in a Haas. And I think this speaks to... You know, I was talking earlier about how Mercedes felt a kind of a responsibility or almost an embarrassment at how much they were dominating... Helmut Marco saying that Max Verstappen would put a Haas regularly on pole. He didn't say regularly, but he just meant like on merit, not a freak result. Kind of speaks to that they're trying to justify that, no, this isn't just some quirk of regulations. We have a, a, a dominant driver who's doing something magical, and that's why you should enjoy it. What he's saying isn't true. Max Verstappen wouldn't be getting poles on, on merit. And in fact... I went I went down and I, I looked at the most surprising polls in history 
and in F1 history. And so I'm just trying to scroll up now to find which uh, which website I found that helped me out on this. So it was, I will find it in a second, but there was a link to I, I, can, I can add something it. Yeah. to it. In fact, I think the quote was in relation to uh, like freak uh, qualifying, like in Spa, where you have uh, wet, dry. Yeah, in changeable like conditions. Where, okay. Yeah, where he said, in conditions like that, where Piastri can go second, uh, Verstappen could uh, do pole in a house, okay. something like that. So right? if you look at the, so the website is autoevolution.com and it, it pointed out the most surprising poles in F1 history. And it's it's things like Nico Hulkenberg at the 2010 uh, Brazilian Grand Prix. Again, uh, you know, that was that was changeable conditions. He found himself on the right tire at the right time. Lance Stroll, 2020 Turkish Grand Prix. Again, changeable conditions. Pa- pa- uh, no, well, uh, it was freshly laid tarmac as well. That Grand Prix was never meant to to be part of the calendar. Maldonado at the Spanish Grand Prix. Sebastian Vettel at Monza in 2008. And actually, the only standout I could find where it was, you know, a, a midfield team out of nowhere, not changeable conditions, but just on merit, bringing it to pole was uh, Giancarlo Fisichella in the 2009 Belgium Grand Prix. So, like these things in F1 are very, very rare, even in changeable conditions. So, can, can I? I think the changeable condition with the Giancarlo Fisichella pole was someone they owed money who was about to <laughs> seize all their equipment, oh, right? Yes. So they had to do something for to look a little bit better. I'm not sure. I think that was the case. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Quite possibly. So, guys, my opinion is, if if Max has to go and drive for another team, can he please go and drive for Williams? Oh yeah, that'd be nice. Mm-hmm. It'd be bloody lovely to see them, <laughs> you know, with a really hot driver and winning a few races. So the, the... I, I think he would look very good in red. I think uh, Ferrari needs Max Verstappen. And he oh. needs to show himself in red. Uh, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? Do you think they could handle it? I think no. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also think yes. I think uh, in certain circumstances, uh, that could that could look good, couldn't it? I mean... I As a Hamilton fan, I would love to see Verstappen have a go at Ferrari. It's high risk, high reward. But th- this is the, 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 the chalice of Ferrari, isn't it? If you go to Ferrari as a world champion and then go and win a championship with Ferrari, you look like an absolute legend. Who's done it before? Schumacher, Benetton world champion, goes to Ferrari, brings them glory. How many other drivers have have tried to emulate that? Alonso, Vettel, Raikkonen. Who did Raikkonen win his title with? Ferrari. There we go. So Raikkonen, he's another one to add to it. But lots in his wake have gone there going, yeah. Or I'm did do Lon- it. Alonso Hamilton lose? Yeah. I think maybe that was it, right? Or was it to do with a, a <laughs> 800 page document at a random photocopying joint? But that is a podcast for another day. Thank you to my panel, Christian Pedersen, our uncle Steve, our video producer, Steve Amy, and, and thanks to me, I suppose. And also, apologies to everyone who was watching us on the live stream that had to put up with an awful lot of internet issues. But we'll try and get them sorted for next week, where I am going to bring you some pre Zandvoort content. We're going to look at uh, some legal ramifications with Peter Wright. We're going to ask, is the Las Vegas Grand Prix going to revitalise the US interest in Formula One? And we'll speak to Mike Caulfield, ex-strategist for Haas and Mercedes as well. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast.
mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.